I uh, invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, starting in the first verse of chapter 20 this morning. We're slowly making our way to the end of the book. When we were together last in the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord Jesus was putting his hands on some children and blessing them. Remember that? He was also at that time interacting with a rich young man who loved his wealth too much. Jesus told that young man that he needed to drop everything and follow him. But the young man went away without following him. He went away sad because he loved his stuff too much. So then Jesus said that it was hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. The disciples were scandalized by that thought. They figured if anybody could get into the kingdom, it was the rich. But Jesus said, no, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Counterintuitively, the little children and those humble like them get into the kingdom, but the rich young men who can't let go of their stuff don't get into the kingdom. If you're first, you must lay aside all of that and humble yourself and become last. But those that are last in the world will be moved to the front of the line. Matthew 19.30 said, Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Then Jesus tells a story to illustrate his point. We didn't get that far last time. We had to quit. But it's what chapter 20 begins with. And he basically ends his story with an inversion of that same line about the first and the last. We often call this story the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Or you might call it the story of the eccentric employer. I wanted to title today's message, The Great Switcheroo. But in the end, I opted to just go with first and last. Would you pray with me? And then we'll listen to Jesus tell his story and apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, it's been a full morning this morning already. Lots of thoughts going back and forth. Special people here like Rhett, John, Laura back from the ranch, newcomers and visitors. Reminders of people from long ago that are still a part of us. This message about the abortion clinic being torn down. Praying for our nation. Worshiping Jesus for what he did at the cross. It's been a full morning. And yet there's more to come. We're now looking at your word and we want to focus in on it. We want to hear this story as Jesus taught it to his disciples and have it hit us like Jesus wanted it to hit his disciples. In such a way as to change us, to form us into the image of Christ, to transform our hearts. Lord, we want to hear from you. Help us to not leave this morning until you've spoken to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was a master storyteller. We've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew how Jesus used parables To teach about the kingdom, remember chapter 13 of Matthew was full of parable after parable after parable. And there there are more parables to come in the next few chapters. We've learned that parables are stories with a shove, right? Jesus, Jesus isn't just telling a story for the story's sake. He's telling the story to move us in a new direction. Parables are stories with a shove. Jesus tells a story, often with a twisty ending, a kicker at the end to show us ourselves and teach us spiritual truth. Here you are listening to this very interesting story. You're following along. 
often with a question mark on your face as Jesus tells a story that you wouldn't expect with characters and elements and a plot twist. And then all of a sudden, you realize that the story Jesus is telling is about you. Well, here he does it again. And the point of this story is that in the kingdom of heaven, which is already here in part, but not yet here in its fullness, in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first, and the first will be last. And you and I have to deal with it. Let's listen to the story. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. Look at that. For the kingdom of heaven is like the following story. A landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Simple story so far, right? How many characters are there? Well, basically two. A powerful rich landowner and a set of workers that he has hired to work in his vineyard for one day. How much has he promised to pay for that day's work? One denarius, right? Now, this is important. Keep that in mind. One denarius. That is apparently the going rate for a day's labor. Heather Dobo, how much do you make in a day? No, I'm just kidding. You don't need to tell us that. How much do you make in a day? These guys got one denarius. That was a day's wage. By the way, this parable is not about economics. There are economics in it, but this is not teaching about how much to pay people or how economics is supposed to work. That's not the point of the story at all. By the way, also the Jews divided the workday up into about 12 hours, especially during the harvest season. So harvest, so at harvest time, which is probably what this is, that's why you need so many workers, the day started around 6 a.m., which what we would call, they would call the first hour. We call it 6 a.m., they call it the first hour. Okay, you've had your coffee, you're now sitting around, you're a worker, day worker, you're hoping that you get called. Hey you, come work for me, I'll give you a denarius. Verse 3. About the third hour, so what time is that? About 9 a.m., good. He went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Now stop there just for a second. Obviously, this guy thinks he needs some more workers. Maybe it was a big job and he wanted to get it done in one day. Maybe he's feeling really generous today and he doesn't necessarily need all those workers so much, but he wants to give people the dignity of work. Or maybe there was, he realized there's bad weather coming and he needs to hurry, so he needs to get some more guys out into the field. Jesus doesn't say why he hires so many people at this time of the day. By the way, what does he tell them he's going to pay them? Whatever's fair, I'll take care of you. That's what he says. Whatever's fair, I'll take care of you. Now, he doesn't have to have a reason for needing so many workers. This is just a story with a shove. This landowner actually doesn't have to make a lot of sense at all. I think Jesus is telling an exaggerated story to get across his point. Because look, verse 5, he went out again about the sixth hour. What time's that? Noon, right? How far along in the day is that? Halfway. You're paying attention. And at the ninth hour, what time is that? About three o'clock. And he did the same thing. He goes back, he leaves the vineyard, he goes to the marketplace, he says, Hey, all of you guys, come work in my field. I'll take care of you. I'm sure that by this time, every person listening to this story 
has their eyebrows raised. I mean, a day laborer getting hired at three in the afternoon, there's only three hours left. He did what? Like, he's just cleaning out the marketplace, right? More guys come in, he's cleaning them all out. He actually goes back to the city square five times to find workers. And the last time, there's only about an hour of daylight left on the clock. Look at verse 9. About the 11th hour. Have you ever heard that phrase, the 11th hour? It means kind of like the last bit of the day. It doesn't mean 11 o'clock at night. What time is the 11th hour? 5 o'clock, right? There's an hour left in the day. He went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. Nobody wanted us. Now remember that. Nobody wanted them. That's important too. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now I'm sure by now everybody's wondering, how is this story going to end? Right? He's got everybody's attention. What is this landowner going to do next? This employer is doing stuff that no other employer normally does. Well, it's the end of the day. And since they're day workers, you pay them by the day. It's time to pay them off. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And all of a sudden, oh, we hear those words, right? He had just said last and first earlier. And here's those words in this. Ah, I think we're coming to the point. But first, the twist at the end. Verse 9. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock, almost quitting time, came and each received a denarius. How much had they been promised? Whatever was fair, right? Just something fair. But they received what the first people had been promised at 6 o'clock in the morning. Now everybody's paying attention, right? So when those, verse 10, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Everybody's paying attention. Oh, look what they got. They got what I was promised. But each one of them also received a denarius. That's the surprise. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Isn't that interesting? These men who were hired last worked only one hour. Notice that word last again. Last. They worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Now I ask you, is that right? So much for equal pay for equal work. Remember, this isn't about economics. They grumble. They are very unhappy and they certainly let the owner know it. Now, I think it's obvious that this landowner symbolizes what God is like, right? He's the authority figure in the story. He's probably standing in for God in some way. He's the king of the kingdom of heaven. And the landowner, in verses 13 through 15, asks the unhappy first workers three rhetorical questions. And the point of those three rhetorical questions makes the point of the whole parable. Look at verse 13. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Question one, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Question two, 
Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Question three, or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. He ends kind of flipping what he said at the end of the last chapter. I think there are two main points here to this story that we can take home from this parable of the first and the last. The first is that the Lord is perfectly just. The Lord is perfectly just. I love how direct the landowner is to the grumbling worker. Look at verse 13 again. Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? So how much did you get? A denarius, right? God is not unfair. God is not unjust. Just like the landowner here, God keeps every single one of his promises. What he said he would do, he did. So we have nothing to grumble about. Friends, you and I have absolutely no legitimate beefs with the Lord. This rules out all grumbling. It rules out all grumbling. He is perfectly just. He keeps every single one of his deals. He will never renege on any of his debts. He is never in the wrong. He never does wrong. He is never unfair. He is perfectly just. And if that was all he was, he would deserve all of our worship. But he's so much more. The Lord is amazingly gracious. The Lord is amazingly gracious. Not only is this landowner not cheating anyone out of their just wages, he wants to do more than he needed to. Look at verse 14 again. Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. In other words, I want to be generous. Then he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? What's the answer to that? Yes, I guess so. When you put it that way. And then he says, or are you envious? Literally, do you have the evil eye? Do you have the evil eye because I am generous? I am amazingly gracious. I want to give these people more than they deserve. Isn't that okay? You know what he's asking? He's saying, you got a problem with that? That's the kicker right there, isn't it? That's what you didn't expect to come at the end of the story. Jesus says, you got a problem with how gracious I am? you got a problem with how amazingly gracious the kingdom of heaven is? Well, if so, you need to deal with it. Did you ever see somebody walk into church and your first thought is, what are they doing here? I never thought I'd see somebody like them here. If you've never thought that way, good for you. If your heart is always joyful about everybody that you've ever, ever seen come into the kingdom, I'm glad. That's the way our hearts are supposed to be. But for most of us, there's a Pharisee that lives in our hearts. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, we can find ourselves rip-roaring mad that the father is generous to those who certainly don't deserve it who haven't been here from the first, working hard for the Lord and keeping our noses clean. And here they are getting off easy. Meth heads. Child abusers. 
prostitutes, abortionists, illegal immigrants. What if those folks came into our church? What if they began to follow Jesus? Fill in the blank here with the kinds of people whom you might be tempted to feel superior to. Those people. People who don't deserve God's grace. People who came late. People whom nobody wanted. And probably for some pretty good reasons. Well, okay. I mean, it's all right for God to show them grace if he wants, I guess. But shouldn't he give us more? If we've been good little boys and girls, Dr. Jesus didn't come to treat the healthy, but the sick. Of course, what we need to realize is that we are all really, really sick. If you don't realize how sick you are, then you think you should be first, but the first shall be last. It's the sick that get the doctor. The last will be first. The Lord is amazingly gracious. And you and I, well, we need to deal with it. How are we doing at treating those whom nobody else wants? We should be the most gracious people ourselves, right? If our Lord is amazingly gracious, how much more should we be? I'm not saying that we don't call sin, sin. But what do we do next? I hope next we love the sinners. How about these people with their deathbed conversions? How about these people with their prison conversions? How about these people on death row who begin to follow Jesus at the very end of their despicable lives? And they don't spend years and years doing the hard work of following Jesus like you and me. Peter just said, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said, oh, Peter, following me is more than worth it. A hundred times more than worth it. But don't begrudge my grace to those who are the last to come in. Like the thief on the cross. He gets the same denarius. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Yes, we must continue to call sinners to repentance. And many sinners do not want to hear that call. I know that I often don't. But we should also be the least judgmental of all people. Christians should be the least judgmental of all people. Are we known for being the least judgmental of all people? Is the church known for being the most gracious group of people in the community? The Lord has shown us so much amazing grace. And when someone repents of their sin, even if they've been really late to the party, we should rejoice and be glad for every ounce of grace they receive, even if it seems like they get more grace than we do. Because that's just who our God is. Don't despise the undeserving latecomers to the kingdom. Because the last will be first, and the first will be last. That's how the kingdom works. And Jesus says, you and I have to deal with it. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to deal with it. When the Pharisee in our hearts rises up and says, they're getting something they don't deserve. 
Help the sinner in our hearts say, yeah, so did I. I got something I didn't deserve. Help us, Lord, to not judge grace against grace, but to be thankful for it all. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is, that you are perfectly just. There is no injustice in God, no shadow of turning, no imperfection, no never doing anything wrong. Oh, you allow wrong to happen. But it's all within your control and your plan to bring justice to the universe. We know that every injustice will be judged, every scale righted, either at the cross or in the eternal judgment. So we have no reason to grumble. Lord, cut off grumbling in our hearts. Help us to see and trust in your perfect judgment. But Lord, help us so much more to be grateful and joyful about the amazing grace that has been given to us in Christ. I pray for anybody here who has never yet seen that amazing grace. They've never realized how scandalous this is. How you love us, even though it's the exact opposite of what we deserve. How Jesus gave his life when we were not worth it. We were the least desirable workers at the end of the day. Nobody wanted. And probably with good reason. That was us. Thank you for what Jesus did when we deserve the exact opposite. I'm glad that you're not just perfectly just, or we would be goners. Instead, you are so gracious, scandalously gracious. Thank you. Help us, Lord, to love those who seem unlovable, who don't deserve our love at all, but help us to love like Jesus loves. Speaking the truth, Calling sin, sin, this is not asking us to coddle sin. But it is asking for us to be as gracious as superhumanly possible through grace. Please work that work in our hearts, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name.